Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Edith Hall first encountered Aristotle when she was 20, and he changed her life forever. Now, one of Britain's foremost classicists and a professor at King's College London, her newest book is Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. 2,000 years ago, Aristotle wrote the most important book on happiness. The first philosopher to inquire into subjective happiness, he understood its essence better and more clearly than anyone since. Most important, Aristotle understood happiness as available to the vast majority of us, but only crucially if we decide to apply ourselves to its creation. And he led by example. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Edith Hall. Edith, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. So your new book is Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life. That is it. Now, and it's launched today in the USA, this, this very is, day. I, I got a copy of it days before the launch. Well, I actually had a, 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 a galley's copy before that, so I feel like very privileged. But Nietzsche says that all, uh, that all philosophy is nothing but the personal confession of the philosopher. No, <laughs> you're, you pretty much put your cards on the table in the, in the beginning of the book, right? You, this, was a, this is a practical endeavor for you. You grew up in a religious home. In your teenage years, you couldn't kind of make that religious ethical system meaning of life work anymore and you were out and about looking for something and years later you found aristotle right uh, pretty much that's about right um i was about 13 when i um really found it extremely difficult to be uh, a believing member of the anglican community and um went off the rails morally for the next seven or eight years absolutely because i thought I'd got all the answers and if I was a good girl and did all the things I was told to, I would go to heaven and live a happy life before I went to heaven. And I, I just simply couldn't believe any of that anymore. But as an undergraduate, um, I've started to read, had to read some Aristotle. And uh, How bad did it get morally? What are we talking? Oh, we're talking um, in terms of what I was doing. I was doing stupid things. I was having too many boyfriends. I was drinking. I was uh, experimenting with practically anything that would sort of try to give some kind of meaning. I felt very empty when it came to um, actually trying out systems. I tried out everything from um, spiritualism and going to seances to uh, various forms of Eastern religion. But the main thing was actually what I discovered later was the very central tenet of moral philosophy. I could see no possible reason to live a good life or be a good person and nice to people, uh, none whatsoever, if um, there were no serious repercussions, you know, if, there's the, if, if it wasn't a matter of um, an interventionist God who was going to smite me with a thunderbolt or punish me, why on earth wouldn't one simply follow one's own self-interest at the expense of other people's? Um, and in fact, I later discovered that is a completely legitimate philosophical school. Um, and it's called egotism. I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to be. People like Ayn Rant, you know, propounded a theory that if we all follow 
our maximal self-interest, then that is how we're going to be happiest. In fact, it made me utterly miserable. I mean, completely miserable. Um, I wanted to find a moral apparatus that it showed there was some correlation between thinking about other people and being empathetic and your own personal happiness. And that is what I found with Aristotle. Yeah. And you talk about in the book how, in the intro, you say that there are kind of two main ways to think about happiness in the modern world. Yeah. There's a kind of subjective pole, which, and then there's an objective pole. The objective pole might be, okay, if you live a long life and you have 2.5 kids, although I never know how you can have a 0.5 of a kid, but they always say 2.5 kids, right? And, uh, you know, and the nice house and everything. Well, then, okay, you should be happy versus the, the subjective kind of ground where you're looking at, okay, what am I, is my disposition, am I content? Mm. Am I, am I, am I balanced? Am I centered? Mm. Am, am, and so you say Aristotle is one that, that maybe uses an objective method to get to the subjective state, right? Let's, if you look at everybody out there, uh, if you look at human nature, you're going to see some trends and, and you can, you can study them and you can see basically, but by and large, what the good life looks like. Yeah, I think that that is, is fair enough. What he's simply saying, I mean, you, you, you call it objective, but he says that it's just a, a set of skills like any others. You can learn to be a good cook. You can learn to be, he always used examples of being a good musician, like a good harp player. You can uh, learn to be a good driver. Uh, he says you can also learn to be a good person. And if you learn to be a good person, do being human in the best possible way, uh, then you are much more likely to feel um, contentment in a long-term way and a sense that the end of your life, and he's very much always thinks in terms of things of the totality, the arc of the life, a feeling that you did your best and therefore a great deal of peace with yourself that you don't have if you've got left a lot of things untried, a lot of uh, questions unanswered. The word I really like is actually the word that the Romans used to translate his word for happiness. His word for happiness is eudaimonia, which is an interesting word um, uh, about really having a, a good disposition towards the world. But they translated it felicitas, felicitas. That's where we get our word and our name felicity come from. And that word somehow absolutely gets it for me. Um, it's it's uh, not something that you can get in an instance. I mean, there's two kinds of subjective happiness. There's feeling for an hour, absolutely wonderful because you've been very tired and you, you're lying on a wonderful warm beach listening to beautiful music. Uh, that's a sort of happiness, but it only lasts for an hour. Felicity is something that really has got to sustain you and work for for a lifetime. Yeah. And the American founding fathers, when they're thinking life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? these are students of of the classical world and had certainly read their Aristotle, many of them. I mean, they're not thinking the consumeristic kind of shallow happiness we're thinking of. They're thinking more like eudonymy or felicitas, right? They're thinking the good life that it, we could have a virtuous state that, that yeah. actually gave people space to pursue noble ends. Well, I think Jefferson in particular, who coined that immemorial phrase about the pursuit of happiness was a very profound Aristotelian in, in lots of ways. People often talk about the Roman Republic when they're talking about the founding fathers because of your actual institutes like like the Senate and, and, and so on. But um, in terms of the philosophy of it, it was uh, eudaimonistic. Um, 
and it, it is being free to make the life that you want with your people and with your relationships uninterfered with by any other uh, state agency. Um, but the happiness, they're all very clear. And you can see it with the founding fathers' early works on education, including those by Jefferson, was that you can't have a happy state unless you've got happy individuals in this sense who are working towards self-fulfillment and crucially always with Aristotle fulfillment of the happiness of your dependence. The difference between Aristotle and a lot of other ancient similar philosophers is that he believes you can only do it in relation to other people. This is not a philosophy for people who want to live alone in a cave or in a barrel or on top of a pillar um, being on their own and at one with God. It's about uh, finding the equivalent of God in everyday transactions with those that you love and your friends and your fellow citizens. So is it fair to say that the founding fathers and Aristotle, if we could get a time machine and bring them together, mm. would look at the election of Donald Trump and say, you failed as cultivating the virtuous electorate here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you've just jumped from Aristotle's book on ethics, which is about how individuals can learn to make good decisions for themselves as individuals. That's his Nikon-Bakian ethics. You've jumped to his politics. Yeah, which, which, is, which he thinks is the highest science, right, in some yes. level, because you, yeah. if we're rational animals, then yeah. this is, I mean, political science, we're like, oh my gosh, is even a science. But for, for Aristotle, right, we're rational animals. We're meant to yeah. live together and yeah. seek the good in common. So really, if you want to learn about the whole of reality, political science is a really great place to start, right? Yeah. How the polis functions all together, families and commerce yeah. and, and, and distributing power. And then he thinks that this is actually not something that's just um, competing egoisms, but you can really learn exactly. about the nature of reality. Well, I mean, he is the, the person who fought, coined the phrase that man is a political animal, a zoon, that's the word, ancient Greek word for any creature, politikon. But he didn't mean by that that man just is naturally wants to argue and, and vote. He meant that na man naturally, humans naturally want to live together in a polis, which is a community together. And he's simply, he's simply distinguishing us from other animals that might, for example, live uh, very isolated lives or uh, live in small packs, as opposed to living in, in a complex city where we're not all biologically related to one another. That's what he meant. Man is naturally... Um, inclined to live in communities above a big, a particular kind of size. So that's what he meant by that. He then explained, I mean, when you get onto the Donald Trump business in, in his politics, which is his great work on how the polis is the place where individual humans can work together for collective happiness. He talks about the four different kinds of constitution that there were in ancient Greece, which has been the absolute bedrock of all political theory and political science ever since. It's the first book practically you'll read if you go to university to study politics is Aristotle's politics. And there are four constitutions. There's monarchy, there's oligarchy, there's tyranny and there's democracy. And Aristotle is very clear that democracy is the best if it's working, but that all of these four constitutions have got a vice that, that makes them difficult if they become a bad version of whatever they are. The vice that he says goes with democracy is what he calls rule by the mob, ochlocracy, which happens if you don't educate your citizens properly. 
And he says that you cannot run a proper democracy unless all the voting agents are educated properly in the issues of common interest, because they will not deliberate properly if they don't. So democracy, if you educate all your citizens, is the best form of constitution. If you don't educate them, and we're having exactly the same problems in Britain where people were not educated enough about um, the ramifications of staying in or or, uh, leaving the European Union, then you get mob rule, which is actually ruled by the ignorant. So doesn't in book three he say twice, which I think I, I don't think he says this other places, right? He says by Zeus like twice. <laughs> and, and and one of the times doesn't he say and he's not a very I mean he, he's not an atheist, but he's his God is kind of the unmoved mover, right? It's like the Rodan kind of the thinker, but you know, the, the immaterial thinker. But I think isn't it where like he's remarking on Exactly. The mob rule, the, de- the democracy might say, let's take all the money from the rich, you know, which is he thinks is foolish. I mean, you, it's not fair, but it, he says by Zeus and then and then a little later says by Zeus. It's a strange thing. Well, Zeus, it is very strange. You can either interpret that as simply it's a rhetorical ploy. So I'm not at all religious, but I might easily sometimes say, good Lord. OK, you can you can dismiss it like that. But Zeus is also the god of justice. And justice for the ancient Greeks is not just a legal thing. It means a a, a society, a civilization where everything is in harmony and in balance and uh, um, uh, stable, you know, stability. And he's very, very keen on stability, quite fascinatingly so, that actually drastic sudden change is, is always in human communities brings bloodshed and suffering. You know, I think he would always be a reformer, but he'd probably be a gradualist reformer, not a, a revolutionary one. I suppose it is teacher Plato who thought, hey, it's a little more like the French Revolution, right? You could take over the <laughs> state. You get the right people in charge. I mean, they both thought there were different sorts of people, right? But like different motivations. But Plato was a little more confident that if you just kind of put the philosopher kings up, everything will fall into line. Where Aristotle has got more faith in the, in the, in the collective, I guess, right? Far more faith. He thinks if you educate the mass, you're going to have a far better decision than taken by a few. I mean, he's the the original hive mind theorist. There are two great passages where he talks about how if you all do something together, you're going to get a better decision because, one, he says it's highly unlikely the whole community will be angry at once. Right. So some parts of the of the system will always be thinking rationally. And secondly, he's a great believer in distributed talent. So he always cites the example of they have these wonderful public feasts. It makes you want to be in democratic Athens where everybody cooked the dish they were best at or made the wine that they were best at and bought only the best from each household. And then he said, you get the most fantastic feast ever because you get the best possible bread, the best possible wine, the most delicious cheese. And I think that's a beautifully positive image of democracy when it's working at its at, a, at its most perfect. The real distinction, though, I think, in terms of political theory between Plato, who taught him, and Aristotle, is Plato is top down. We always start with how shall we organise the rulers? And Aristotle is always bottom up. It's how can each individual citizen, by building a happy little mini city in his own household, and a happy little partnership with his own wife and children, how can those sort of little people all work together to elect and make representatives at the top? And I find that that's much more um, 
Uh, it's because he's much more practical. Plato's much more theoretical and otherworldly and idealistic. Aristotle says, look, how can we start building a happier society from what we've got now? And you're quite right. He likes the common sense of people. Every philosophical discussion starts from what he calls the endoxa, which means the beliefs that common sense common to us all. And, and for him, right, if the theory goes really against the doxa, you got to revise the theory. You don't try to Absolutely. shift the doxa. But, and, and also, it's it's interesting, too, because he, I mean, Plato thought, right, that the philosopher kings, you'd, you could yeah. breed them, but you'd have these, or you'd have these, everybody would copulate with everybody. So once you get to the top, you don't need attachments like that. Whereas Aristotle thinks the best thing for for the for people that are ruling and is families that the family is yeah. the is the unit of the polis and so, so it's one of the reasons you talk about he's against adultery right yeah it, it's amazing it's not I a know. puritanical thing it's a no. thing that like wow if you look at a polis as the sum of of the goods of the family if there's distrust in the home where the formation well, of the citizen it happens it's the fundamental relationship he says is the the two uh the, the partnership of spouse equivalents um, and although he never has a bad word to say about gay relationships, I, and I don't think he had any problem with them, he is talking about a man and a woman when he's doing that. But he says if, the, if there is distrust of any kind, that is the building block of society. It is the absolute building block. If that has got a fault line in it, the whole of the rest of society is resting on faulty foundation bricks. And I think that is the most extraordinary image um, and is something that has made it, you know, I've been married 28 years. Um, I don't think in terms of I'm not going to have that exciting affair I could have because of cheating on, on one individual person. I think I'm not going to do you know do that because it will hurt my children, it will hurt my friendships, and it will seed distrust at the very bottom of all of society. How momentous is that? I mean, that is huge. Yeah, and do you think that's something that really, one of the reasons that, I mean, there's lots written today about the, the fragility of the liberal democratic project. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because we underestimate the significance of those sorts of things. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, because maybe everybody thinks it's right wing or something or traditionalist, but there is a but there's there is a way this is non-ideological Mm-hmm. That, that Aristotle would say, you know, if you just are honest and look around, that, that, that any polis worth its salt is built, uh, built Absolutely. It's a civil society is the foundation for the for the polis. It, and it's quite remarkable, given that he was an ancient Greek man. I mean, there is ancient Greek men had, even if they were married, as many sexual opportunities as they wanted and could afford. You know, this was not a, an issue. They wouldn't have had a problem being a political figure or getting, you know, there was no dishonor attached to that if you're a man at all. He's what saying you're it, saying, it's Donald Trump's dream society. <laughs> well, he is a, a prime example, I think, of how his personal behavior has be, if he, has rotted the trust on a much more macro level, of course. More important you are than the more significant that is. But I just find the idea that you've got to start the trusting at a very micro level and build outwards to make a happy society, a really profound argument. And I found when I talk to people publicly about this, there's a very, very serious sense of accord with that. And you're right, it's got nothing to do with sexual puritanism. Aristotle wouldn't care less what you do before you get married and make a household, right? You know, this is this is not about just being anti-sex. This is about the importance of the building blocks of society. You talk a lot about self-awareness in your book. Yeah. And I want to just read something that I love. I love <laughs> I love this kind of 
vulnerability. You say, after reading Aristotle on virtues and vices and talking honestly with people I trust, so you're a good Aristotelian, you're going to the group, I believe my own worst faults are impatience, recklessness, excessive bluntness, emotional extremes, and vindictiveness. Yeah. Remind me never to get on your bad side. <laughs> At what age did you realize these are your vice? But and I know I, it's very humble. Also, you don't extol your virtues very often, but you're very honest about your vices. When did you kind of make the Aristotelian assessment of yourself? That was at about 28. Um, I, my first marriage was in big problems. I had a, a, a marriage that ended in divorce, no children, uh, to an American citizen, actually. <laughs> but um, the level of the damage that seemed to be going down there gave me very uh, to both of us and to a wider circle of friends uh, made me really assess my input it's very easy to blame the other person in situations like those and of course it's not like that and it wasn't making me happy um also as a woman in a in in a, in a career that women have only relatively recently been let into at a high level i have suffered and I'm not in moaning victim mode here at all, but I have suffered a very great deal of mindless hatred <laughs> from uh, envious men uh, professionally. And there is not, you know, when I was younger, there would I could love to just wait and take them down secretly when I could. Right. So the joy is when you're the joy for me was when very unhealthy joy. I would get an opportunity on an appointments committee not to shortlist someone because they'd done something rotten to me before. So that's the sort of ghastly revenge is sweeter cool sort of thing. But you know what? I realized I was spending my whole life plotting that stuff, right? Which was merely showing how much they'd hurt me instead of me getting on with what I was good at. And the joy of trying to do your best every day, right? Is if you genuinely know you have done your best to be a good person, other people complaining must have bad motives. If you, are, are you with me? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. If, absolute, if I have yeah. genuinely done something for good reasons and somebody else is going to say horrible things about me, they're the ones with the questionable motives. And that's so liberating. You go to sleep knowing, well, I cannot change what's in their minds, but I can change what's in mine. Yeah, it's, right. like, it's like generally people that are accusing everybody of – malicious motives often themselves they, they see their own motives everywhere they right so, so, yeah they project you know i feel like aristotle made you a great scholar and a virtuous person but ruined you as like a soap opera character because i'm just thinking <laughs> of the attractive young professor who's plotting her you know like a joan collins it's very it's a, you'd be a great character in some kind of bravo series but but yeah. you know these we have to make decisions like i uh, you're one of your uh, parenthood really transformed me. <laughs> Parent, all you need is to have kids and read a little Aristotle, and yeah. and that's the path to virtue. Well, if you, I think kids give you an opportunity because the love for them can be certainly. I was lucky, so overwhelming that putting their interests first becomes it's impossible not to. Right. It is an absolute imperative. So that gives you a very, very good opportunity to, if you like, take the selfishness out of you because you're halfway there by your hormones. Right. And thinking very, very, very hard about how to make the best possible opportunities for them rather than just trying to turn them into mini me's, which I think is a great fault of, of the educated classes. Um, I found that I could not have written What I'm trying to say is I could not have written this book 30 years ago. I'm nearly 60. I've really have been through divorce, bereavement, raised uh, three kids. And, and let me say for our listeners, because this is only audio, 
I would never believe you're nearly 60. You look fantastic. <laughs> well, you could say that's because I am actually genuinely happy person in, 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 in the fullest sense of the word. I've done... I've been terribly fortunate, of course, and we could talk about Aristotle on bad luck. I'd quite like to do that because he's the first person whose philosophy is really frank about how bad luck can be. But I have had uh, managed to identify what I was good at, which is communicating difficult ideas in an accessible way. Right. That was my one gift. And I got to get paid for it. Okay, which is what, you know, getting paid for what you love doing. And I wanted to find a man who loved me and have children with him and stick with it. And I did. So even if that all got taken away from me next week, which it could. Yeah. Yeah. You you talk about in the book, a woman, a scholar who lost. No one could take away the fact that I really fought hard and did. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, you could you could lock me off on my own in you know solitary confinement for the last 20 years of my life you cannot take that away right so that's this self-starting thing about aerosol that it's down to you happiness is something you can decide to and i'm going to use the verb do happiness isn't a, a, a doing thing it's a verb not a noun it's not a state you achieve it's how you are every day and nobody can take internal peace away from you that you have really really done your best um, well, and, you could, we could we rewrite Whitney Houston and, say, and they can't take away my dignity we could say they can't take away my felicity uh, right, right I mean that, well, but that, they that, can they can, they, can they, they I mean you can be made to suffer very very badly in all kinds of ways but the one suffering they can't put you through is that you screwed up yeah because it won't have been you it would have been them who screwed you up well, yeah, you talked about Aristotle and luck this is one of the things that's interesting because he's very realistic right and, and sometimes I think in as post enlightenment kind of people with, you know, growing up in the liberal enlightenment tradition, we want to say everybody's equal and that's true. And yet uh. that's an ideal yet. No, everyone's not equal for Aristotle that, that, you know, some people are born with great opportunities. Some people lose things in life. Some people have, you know, inherent congenital things, but he thinks everyone has an equal opportunity where they are to cultivate the good life, right? Yeah. And, so, and so he's realistic about, look, some people are going to have an easier time. But you also write about how he – also, sometimes the natural genius or something, mm. actually, you might think they're happier, but the person who's overcome a lot and hasn't accomplished as much might actually be the person that's got more eudonymia because they've actually appreciated having to work and cultivate the good life. Well – you can never tell from the outside how somebody feels inside. That That is the crucial thing. And there at the beginning, I used the example of uh, Queen Victoria versus Marie Antoinette. Uh, one lived a very long life. All her children lived till, you know, till after her. She didn't lose any children. Um, and she was praised as a very good queen. Marie Antoinette dies at just over 30, having lost children in total disgrace and humiliation. We have no idea which felt better about themselves inside. We have absolutely no idea. So that's what I mean by that kind of thing. But the um, real importance of doing it as a verb is, I mean, I think you do have to feel narrative And when you assess your vices, and I discovered my worst one was uh, severe desire for revenge on all my enemies, um, is the um, to assess both your actual gifts because you're going to be far, far happier if you identify what you're good at, which will also be what you enjoy. And that's one of the other things I love so much about Aristotle. My 
Christian upbringing was very anti-joy and anti-pleasure, right? That there was a sort of pleasure is bad ethos. He says, watch your child, see what makes them excited, because that will be what they're good at, right? So if they thoroughly enjoy cooking, do not try and turn them into an accountant, right? <laughs> you, 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 you look out for what, what they love. So you have to do that, but you also have to review where your good luck and bad luck has been. You have been born with a set of cards and some of them will be top trumps and some of them will be horrible small cards. If you've been unfortunate enough to be born very, very poor, very, very low down the social scale and or without anybody who loves you, then it's far harder to be happier. And he's the first person who says that. And he also thinks that people who have to struggle to put food in their mouths, which is at least a third of the world, if you think about it, even today, do not really have time to do a lot of moral philosophy. You know, if they've got to get your kids fed. So you've got to review where you are. Um, and we've all got born with some trumps and some small cards. And you can also have all your cards taken away with a tragic accident. That means you can't walk again. So you've just got to be very aware of that. But none of them is completely irrecoverable if you're an Aristotelian. There is nothing from which you cannot recover and get some good feelings out of life from. Yeah, I, I, I'm struck with one of the things you said about the people who can't put food on the table. You know, you, yeah. you said, have this great phrase in the book. You said Aristotelians are moral particularists. Not moral yes. relativists. I mean, people no. could say could, people could misread Aristotle no, no, because no, no, no. because it's all about the mean and virtues. No, and no. and you're, you're like more particular. It's like two people could be embezzling. One who does it to feed her children and puts the money back at the end of the month, and that's her only option. She's very poor. And the other who does it just for avarice. These things. This is why you say it's not relativism. It's particularism. The the, the, the motive behind things. And you write a lot of the book of motive and intention. That yeah. that matters hugely. For whether the act is a good act or not. Assessing assessing uh, both the, the degree of culpability and the punishment. Absolutely. And that's why lawyers are so, you know, the judiciary, top people in political philosophy, uh, sorry, uh, a judicial philosophy, um, jurisprudence have always read a lot of Aristotle. It goes with uh, its particularity. Absolutely. This is the assumption that is quite right, that no lawmaker can ever anticipate all possible circumstances. You can make a general law that people who steal should, you know, go to prison for five years or something. You cannot possibly anticipate all the different people who will steal and why. And you mustn't take away from the judges and people handing down sentences the right to be flexible on that. That was what was so terrible about the Californian three strikes thing, that it took away from judges the right to listen to the individual circumstances, you know, and, and just handed down a uniform thing. And that brings us on to the other thing that I think certainly when I talk to other parents is so helpful, is the difference between equality and equity. <laughs> Again, it's a legal term. And it, it means you've got three children who've all got different needs. Do you give them exactly the same things? Well, the children might scream that you should because they have quite a primitive sense of fairness. But if one of them likes riding lessons and wants to be a, a, a jockey, uh, one of them is perhaps really ill and needs extra medical insurance. Yeah. The other one um, has no apparent needs, doesn't really want any money sent on them. But, you know, why don't you invest the money to buy them a house in the future or something? You've got a proper parent thinks through 
each child's needs. And then they've got you've got to have the balls and the self-confidence to say, this is my judgment about what you need. You know, you can argue with me and I will listen, but this is my judgment. I think I do know best while you are dependent on me. And that takes a lot of that takes a lot more effort (laughs) than just giving them all the same pocket money. (laughs) I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Can we go back to revenge for a minute? Yeah. Because you talk about it in the book and how Aristotle has a limited place for it. I, Miroslav Wolf, who's a prominent, uh, he's Croatian by by birth, but he teaches at Yale now, uh, is American. Yeah. He says that at the level of exchange, yeah. that if I take something from you without regard for what's meant, that's, uh, that's um, theft, right? Normally, so Normally, what we have is like, I'm trying to buy a car or something. I think I got a good deal. You think you made enough profit, but that's not theft. It's ex- we 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 seek something like ex- exchange, right? Like like mm-hmm. you know that that if if there's if there's too much on one side, it becomes theft or something. But basically, there's some latitude for exchange, and then if it's unilateral, it's a gift, right? And that's why some of us are afraid of gifts because we're afraid it's an exchange in disguise, right? I yeah. give you this, and then he he says on the level of human relations. Uh, that revenge is akin to theft. That like it's I want I want my emotion, my vindication, no matter what it caught. There's no limit on whatever I can get. That ec- that exchange is something like justice, and forgiveness is something like a gift. Now I wonder, like, is is that is Aristotle's sense of revenge folded into something like justice? I mean, because it's not untempered, and he's concerned about collateral damage. I mean, it's. It, 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 it seems more akin to like the harder end of justice. Uh, does it? That's it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, this is where I find certain kinds of of, of modern and, and uh, moralizing a little bit, yeah, too soft for me. I think that uh, one of the reasons someone like me was very attracted to to, to Aristotle is that he actually 
thinks that with all things that Christians and the Platonic tradition and actually the Stoic tradition, the sort of dualism, say are bad, like anger, yeah, or revenge, and they've got an opposite, which is good, like uh, being meek and mild and forgiving. He, Aristotle says, no, it's not a two thing. It's a three thing. So for every emotion, like let's just stick with anger for a minute, you've got uh, the right amount of anger, which allows you to be a moral agent. There are circumstances where you have to feel angry or you cannot act in your own defense or those of your dependents, right? If, a ch if my child is bullied at school, it is anger that gets me into the head teacher's office to discuss what's going on and ask for uh, the issue to be aired at least, the victim to be heard, and if necessary, redress, yeah? If I, but there's two vices associated. One is way too much, which is the anger that is all the time with everybody and isn't at the right person at the right time. And worst of all, where you hit the wrong person, you hit your child because your boss is being horrible to you. Or no anger at all, which means you're a moral pushover and a coward and won't, won't d defend your own rights in the city. The anger though that gets you into court if somebody has actually damaged you or your dependent if it's instrumentalized correctly, is an instrument of justice. Yeah. Now, for someone like me who has very strong emotions, <laughs> this was a much, much better way of thinking about organizing them and coping with them than just to tell me they were all wrong. And especially, again, it is gendered as a girl. Girls aren't supposed to have anger or vindictiveness or pride, right? Those kinds of things. Aristotle said, said they're all perfectly fine if it's in the right amount to simply fight for your rights and so on. So I think for people who are very, very gentle by nature, he may not be so helpful because they don't find, you know, I know people who find it much easier to turn the other cheek or, or, or whatever. For uh, very passionate people, strangely, Aristotle, who's the philosopher of this moderate mean, is far, far, far easier because he says it's okay to be angry, Edith. But how are you going to use it? And are you being angry with the right person? Right. So it becomes a soldier, not a general. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because contrary to someone like maybe Immanuel Kant, right, you also get. I can't see him getting angry. Can you? No, no. And I wouldn't want to party. I wouldn't want to party with Kant. Uh, not at all. You know, it, it, but you think of Kant on like duty, because I, I think of like the negative emotions, also the positive ones, like for Kant, right? Like, let's say. You know, nine eleven hits. You 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 see the planes go into the buildings, and you develop this prejudice against Middle oh. Eastern folks, and you want to go enlist. Uh, then, like that, like the you, the fact that you 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 delight in doing your duty or something. Uh, it, it, well, it's then it's not duty. But for Aristotle, you could be emotional. I mean, not in a. I, I'm not saying he would condone prejudice or something like that. But there's something about you could love doing your duty like you could the, the fact that you might love a virtuous action doesn't eliminate it as being no. good it, it, or no. for, for Kant well if you love it too much you can it must not it's if Kant I picture like the old midwestern Lutheran farmer that loved his wife so much he almost once told her yeah. you know? <laughs> for Aristotle you it's, a, it. it's okay to be emotional You're, yeah and the way Aristotle sees uh, unlike Plato again again like any of the dualistic sort of systems who see emotion and reason as in conflict, 
and reasons got to win. He says a wonderful image, and he's so great at images that it's the con it's like the convex and the concave sides of a spoon. That anger and uh, sorry, emotion and reason are just two different ways of looking at the same kind of thing. And I, I, I said, I think for people who have strong emotions, this is a much more uh, realistic system for thinking about them. What he would have said about 9-11 as about Brexit, as about practically everything, there was we, you did not deliberate properly. You did not, we did not take our time over those decisions. So there should have been at least a sort of three-year discussion time before anyone decided who to go to war with right so that when you do decide to go to war if you do and you do your duty it's with the full support of your entire community for very well thought out reasons haste is the absolute enemy of good deliberation if you're an aristotelian i know this because i again i'm a very precipitate as i said impetuous person and act too quickly and i have really learned to take my time i now write endless emails that say i'm sorry you think that way let me think about it for a week and get back to you. Right. I have really learned to do that as a reflex instead of straight into the fight. And goodness me, don't we all settle down if we just give ourselves a week? Yeah, know? this is the challenge of like social media and things like that, right? Isn't because, it? you know, Isn't it? the practice of before email and stuff like that, the practice of write a letter and sometimes not send it. And sometimes, not post them, yeah. Right, right. Not send it, right. And now it's like you have the impulse, you know, like it's a very, um, you know, you know, I feel like I love your book. I love talking with you. I, and I think Aristotle's been a gift. But like in a bar fight, I might want pre-Aristotle. <laughs> Edith, really. I mean, I'm just thinking. I can't see you in a bar fight. <laughs> what? I've got big shoulders. I'm a very. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. So I want to just ask big picture, a couple big picture things. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, before we get to that, I want to say one of the things I love in your book, you talk about the syllogism and premises. And like what I took from it is. Every time I watch a political debate, I should watch for the second premise, right? Because the, yes. the classic sort of Aristotelian syllogism right, would be like, um, all philosophers are human. Socrates is a philosopher. Uh, 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 therefore, uh, Socrates is a human, right? Yeah. Like you could have, so the, the pre- but you talk about how people do shell games with the second premise, yeah. right? Like you'll, you'll, you'll say, you have an analogy where somebody says uh, to their spouse, you're in psychotherapy. All people in psychotherapy uh, are, are, nuts. Are, are nuts and needy, screwed up yeah. people. Therefore, you're screwed up and needy. Yeah. And you say that's the problem because you could just as easily say all people uh, uh, people in psychotherapy are taking ownership of their emotions and being introspective exactly. and are therefore are they. So like, but that's what we often do, right? With, with We take the syllogism and misuse it, right? And that happens in public discourse all the time. Oh, you, you, you this is, I find that sort of, that's an unfortunate analogy, but it's like the nuclear bomb of logic is once you've taught a child to question the premises, right, not the conclusion, and then one step on from that is that the second premise where things get hidden. People have a politician or, or your husband or whoever, your oppressive boss, right, will give you a first premise that looks completely reasonable so that you say this is a reasonable man or woman and I will I will listen to them. Right. Like um, um, employees who are really lazy aren't good for the company. Right. 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 But so, of course, we all agree with that. But then they'll they'll be able, having got you to say um, all redheads are lazy. (laughs) And then bang, you can say, therefore, we shouldn't employ redheads. Yeah. 
And it's that second one where uh, I've done a discourse analysis on a lot of uh, British prime ministers on that. Tony Blair was the past master at the misleading second premise. And once you, this is a very simple way of just premise A, premise B, and then inference. Logic is such a helpful thing in life. It allows us to gain more than the sum of the knowledge of two things, two different facts, right, that we can know can then lead to a glorious third one that we couldn't have known. It's a fantastic human thing. Like all fantastic human skills, it can be terribly, terribly abused, right? So we can all think of far worse historical examples than the one I've given Um, when it's about categorizing people as groups. Um, uh, This is one, um, I do a lot of going around the state schools in Britain where philosophy is hardly taught at all. I find 16 to 18 year olds absolutely lap up some parts of this book Uh, and the communication chapter, which is on his uh, rhetoric and his logic, Aristotle's rhetoric and logic, is the one that I find, you know, a lot of them say to me at the end, this will transform the way I deal with my (laughs) mum. Or this will transform my next uh, 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 argument about politics. Um, and thank you for, for giving. And it's very simple. They're very simple tools, really. You practice this as a kid, right? When, you, when, yeah. when you're growing up and you want your curfew extended, right? Yeah. You're already thinking, well, Jimmy and Mary are allowed to stay out to 11 o'clock. So you're already practicing these kind of log- re- rhetorical of skills. It's just great when you have someone that's studied them, right? Well, hum- um, in humans were... You're obviously using logic from the day we were, we were all nomads on the Great Plains. I have no doubt that people didn't argue using logic. It was Aristotle who formulated it and invented basically algebra that you could do these uh, different blocks. I hope that when people have, have read that particular chapter, if they're interested, they will go on and find out more because logic is far more complicated if they want it to be than that. And they can all become great logicians. <laughs> But but, that, but what I put in that chapter is what, is what has been adequate to help me through everyday transactions. And again, ask for time. If you want to analyse an email that is arguing you should do something using those kinds of arguments because of A and B, therefore C, say, please, can I have a day to think about it so that you can take it down into the different components. And Do you offer- draw charts with emails? Do you, do you draw a little like B? There's premise B. Have you ever done that? I have. Oh, I, I love that. That's fantastic. I love Absolutely. you practice what you preach. I said, well, I, more that I preach after having practiced. <laughs> That's the Aristotelian way, right? You I can't preach unless you practice. Before, I could not have written this book if I didn't have 30 years of gritty. I come from a large family, lots of brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and, and parents. And, and um, I've had innumerable different work experiences and I've had lots of different kinds of friendships. And Aristotle on friendship is is incredibly powerful analytical tools as well to help you through. And I genuinely think that he deserves to be out there and that he can really help much younger people. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I want to stop there. So there, I think that's some of the imp- super. Well, I, I love. I could say a lot of salutary things about the whole book, but the, some of the stuff you talk about discussing his views on friendship and how. You know, there's different kinds of friends, right? You got fr- friendships of utility where you both, you know, it's an exchange kind of thing. There are friendships based on shared experience and things like that. But, and you don't have to get rid of those substance friendships. No. But really, the, 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 the friendships that are going to be the deepest are ones that are where they're rooted in virtue and the good life, right? Because you're both going towards an end together, 
Right. So there's something bigger than the friendship. So that will be the lasting, enduring one. And then once you know that, you can have friendships that are superficial, superficial, <laughs> and that's okay. Like you're not it's a okay. you're not a superficial person. No. You just know that that's what they are, and that is a really liberating way to look at human relationships. I think it's extraordinarily liberating. Um, the way I, I it's helped me in particular is when I've had you know as as happens if you you live a long life and have I've had a couple of friends who I do believe really let me down um and when I needed them in ways I'd never have let them down um but instead of dumping them like I will never see you again I've simply in my head moved them to pleasure friendship category with Aristotle I still love their company you know with one of them it might be going to the theater with them that that kind of thing but I will never again fully trust them on a life and death issue with great private and confidential ramifications and that's fine but it's because i put i actually had two great expectations they thought i was a friend for going to the theater with then you might require do you see what i mean so that's and and vice versa just because somebody isn't a great theater person or doesn't like to watch the soccer game or something so what they, they, they might be though your best friend in the sense of they're the person that makes you your best self and they you well, totally. And you know what? I, my own marriage has uh, this great thing. I mean, I say we've been together 28 years, raised children, but Richard absolutely hates travel. He will not travel. He hates it. I love it. So when we met, you know, we both wanted to have these kids together and, 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 and do life together and do good things together. And we both write and, and, and be supportive. We just agreed. I could travel and he wouldn't. And <laughs> Uh, we would trust each other. Just one basic rule: no, no, no sleeping with anyone else. And, that, and then, I, and people say, "How on earth do you two get on when you're all over the world and he's at home?" And the answer is, we talk every single day. And I'm doing my my thing and and my life, and he's and it's absolutely fine. It's a matter of will. So that's a very good example of that. Somebody who we have very different hobbies and interests, but we wanted to do the big thing together. So um, I think that people actually, when they're choosing lifelong partners, who is your best friend in Aristotle's terms, but, you know, it's just simply your best friend, closest friend and ally. Um, they don't talk through the really important things. It doesn't matter at all whether you want to both like football. It matters whether you both believe in monogamy and serious child raising. Yeah, I'll tell you, you should be doing marriage counseling or pre-marriage <laughs> counseling, premarital counseling, yeah, uh, te- teaching classics and a little side gig with um, premarital counseling. So uh, Colin Gunton, who taught at King's College, uh, taught oh. theology. He was a wonderful human being. Uh, I met him uh, and had did lunch you, with him. Did you go to King's College? I, I didn't, but I have friends that went there. And he was, I, I did graduate work at Princeton Seminary, right. and he was at the Center for Theological Inquiry. We went to lunch, but he wrote a great book called The One, the Three, and the Many. And he says that all of Western intellectual uh, big debates and clashes could be dis- distilled to Heraclitus versus versus Parmenides, right? Everything's changing versus everything sort of one eternal. I mean, would a more refined point to say you could you could more classify most of them as something between Plato and Aristotle if you really I certainly do. I certainly do. Um the point at which this very bright youth who was 40, 50 years younger, but turns up to the academy when he's 17, the point at which he said, I don't believe in your ideal world of eternal forms of everything out there beyond what we can see. And I don't believe in your contempt of the physical body and the material universe. Um, I think we should start from the fact that we are animals living in a material world that we can see 
around us and work outwards. I think that is, to me, that is the great split, actually, in sort of not just Western philosophy, but but world philosophy. Do we love this world we're in? Are we going to try and make the best of it? And then Christianity, that always seemed to me the difference between the people who said there is going to be a wonderful um, afterlife and kingdom of heaven and the people who said, actually, let's simply build the kingdom of heaven where we are right now. You know? yeah. And we talk about like the basic animal instinct that's fight, yeah. fight or flight. Like, yes. like, like and I, it, it, yes. you almost see that in that's philosophy too, right? There's flight philosophies that look to yeah. a transcendent realm where things are... Yeah. Are, are where you know the eternal line and the perfect yeah. circle, or there's fight where you get into it, you know, and there's no, you, you, you can't, the nitty gritty. yeah, you can't get up without getting down. I mean, yeah. that's 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 it, right? And and I I really just wonder. I mean, we can even date that, you know, to the middle of the fourth century BC. That this incredibly uh, brave little boy, which as you said, didn't mean that he he was an atheist. He wasn't. He did believe that there was some kind of moving impulse out there in the universe, which people call God. He called it the unmoved mover. It's the motor of the universe that that keeps us all changing and the cycles of the seasons and of life and death. But he's unmoved because he, she or it is not remotely interested in your own moral goings on. You've got to figure that one out for yourself. It strikes me that we know a whole lot more about say the natural world than yeah. Aristotle does now, like yes. about frogs or about horses or about minerals. But we feel so much more alienated in the world yeah. that because w- all those things are disconnected from mm. purpose questions and, and yeah. why, and what's the meaning of things where Aristotle can bring together the, the, the detailed study of the particular and yeah. put it in the context of the whole. And I, it seems like in, in modern intellectual discourse that that is all, but, just verboten, right? I mean, we just, you do your thing in Shakespeare and you do your thing Absolutely. with genetics. And, and Aristotle would, we, I mean, they'd run him out of a modern university on a rail. He has huge lessons to teach the modern academy from that point of view that actually it's all just one holistic, uh, it, it should, the intellectual enterprise, be wonder at everything and asking why questions about everything. And I, I certainly have have tried to do that. But it also makes him, you know, he's becoming increasingly the pinup boy of ecology because he talks so much because man is an animal. And this is why Darwin loved him so much is he's the first person to be brave enough to say we're not some creation by God that's special. We are an animal, but we're an animal with with considerably more mental powers than the other animals that we know of, which gives us, he said, a massive responsibility to the other ones. It's not that we should, because we've got a better one, we should beat them all up and exploit it all. It means we are responsible for this exquisitely beautiful planet with all the different species of plants and animals that we share it with. And do you know the very first uh, reference to uh, humans rendering a species of animal extinct is in Aristotle. He says, with great regret that the red scallop on a lake on Lesbos, the island of Lesbos, where he lived for a couple of years, has been rendered extinct by overdredging. And so he says, I sadly have not seen one. I am told that they once were here. And you just, he got it. He saw that humans interacting with the environment could cause irreparable damage. And he actually says a man, human being, can cause 10,000 times as much damage as an animal, even though we haven't got the claws and, and and the teeth because we can invent these dreadful weapons uh, and so on. So with our very, very special gift, 
everything that makes us different from animals, abilities to plan, deliberate, talk together as we are talking about past, present and future and abstract issues, which as far as we know, even dolphins and elephants don't do abstract discussion. They may do, but we don't know that they do comes the most incredible responsibility. And I'm actually kind of delighted to see that that, that uh, people in the green movement are beginning to use this as, as a good starting point for a green philosophy. You know, the other thing that strikes me is that you, you have people like, maybe someone like Heidegger, who, who thinks human nature is kind of changing constantly. Or you think of critical studies say that, you know, that this kind of incommensurability that, that, that this culture can't talk to this culture, Ugh. can't talk to this culture. Whereas there's something that, you know, so there's something in Aristotle that would say, no, I mean, there's differences. I'm not ignoring the particularity, but by and large, human nature is far more similar than different. And when you look at the particularity without papering over it, you're going to see, and, and we ought to study it to see yeah. the universal truths we can get from it, right? Like that, that to me in certain circles would be like politically incorrect. No, no, no. We, we're all, we're all in these incommensurable kind of cul-de-sacs and, you know, to, to suggest that there's, you know, truth with a capital T that, that mm-hmm. would, that, that could be drawn from a particular study. That, that seems, um, oppressive to some people. But for Aristotle, without those kinds of questions, will be, will be left on the virtue uh, by our nature, right? Well, it's going to lead us to nihilism if we don't ask big picture questions. No, I think I think his fundamental question underlies everything: is is what is it to be human in this universe? How is how can we be the best possible Homo sapiens as well as the best possible um, Edith or whatever? Um, and I, I'm all for that. And I think, although uh, of course, when you're doing cultural history, the differences are terribly interesting. If you actually, I would say to my students anthropologists only count like three generations a century if you think that say men many societies have children in their early 30s they tend to so if we hold hands back to the roman forum it's only 60 humans it is a, and if you think how much you owe to your grandparents and and, and 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 so on that is not the great historical change you know we have not completely changed about how we suffer unbereavement or how we love or how we argue in in 60 generations i just don't believe it it's not so very far away and long ago this is why science fiction is such a great genre right because it wouldn't be possible as a great genre if certain things weren't constant because we can change the whole society technology other plans but we have these similar motivations that make the stories relatable and the same goes for for the cultural relativism um if you actually um say talk about apes or dogs or birds or almost any other species the dna difference between the most extremely small one and the most extremely big one say or difference in plumage is so much wider the difference between humans dna wise even if you go from the very very smallest to the very very biggest from different sides of the planet it's like two percent or something it is abs we are far more alike than most species right and have been throughout time so i think that i've had enough really of cultural relativism i don't believe in it when it comes to right and wrong anyway i mean i really don't i think there are uh there are fundamental human rights and i'm not ashamed of 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 saying so even if it means it gets me in trouble and being called an imperialist sometimes and isn't the fact that even the most sort of dogged professed relativist (laughs) will use things like is and ought. And once you are, are using <laughs> is and ought, 
Yeah. You're in normative language, right? You're saying exactly. that there are, there are truths with a capital T. There are common human values that we ought to cultivate and celebrate, and 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 that we would. Yeah. So it's it just it's one of those things where, like, I guess in Aristotle's state, we would say, look. Your relativistic theory is against the Delxa. So you got to change the theory because people can't live this way. Well, one of the great problems, I mean, you mentioned Heidegger, um, but one of the great problems with uh, the whole continental philosophical tradition, from my point of view, and I think it would be Aristotle's, um, from the Frankfurt School through um, Marcuse and Derrida, is that they all start from rejecting everyday people. They all start from this is they, the language is too besmirched with colonialism or racism or whatever. They all start with a very dismissive attitude, um, which I think Aristotle would have found deeply patronizing. Of course, we've got to interrogate and question and challenge all the time. He was adamant about that. He said that's the whole point of a constitution is that you revise it every year if necessary, according to the new needs that come up. Um, but starting out with dismissing the common human attitude to something as just ridiculously uh, low class or thuggish or old fashioned is, is, is deeply insulting actually to the rest of our species. I, I heard a Hegel scholar once say that one of his colleagues told him that learning logic from Hegel would be <laughs> like, like taking culinary tips from Jeffrey Dahmer. But uh, which is, this, of course, this American cannibal. This <laughs> it was. I don't know about him. Uh, he was a serial killer, cannibal, crazy guy. But so okay. there's the joke. But but I I wonder though if there's something like a, a, a common sentiment at least in Aristotle and Hegel because Hegel's trying to do a thing of the whole. And where where Hegel thinks we see contradictions, they may not be contradictions. The whole might be there. That that when you hit the contradiction point, ask yourself: Is it really a contradiction, or is it the mean thing? Is it kind of is the truth somewhere? Um, in this contradiction, right? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, like, if that would be an affinity that it, it, there would be the exception to some of that continental tradition. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd have to think of. I'm going to do my. Um, I'd have to give that some thought. Yeah, here. yeah. I'll send you an email after I'll this conversation. And I'm going to put some Hegel like syllogisms in, and then see, and then you could I, respond. I have to analyze your syllogisms, definitely. <laughs> well, one of the things I, I love about your book, just in conclusion, is I think you, you're you're very. You say, hey, I'm not religious. I, I, I grew up in that kind of context. But you talk about the religions that have learned from Aristotle, all, you know, not just the great Western monotheistic traditions, but Eastern traditions. And, and, and he, you know, what, what I think in public life is so lacking today is a common vocabulary. Yeah. And, and what you offer here is, is a sort of a, 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 a reflection on Aristotle and an introduction for people and a, and a reflection and, and, and a guide that could serve as an approach to public life. Like, hey, if we, we could agree on these things, wherever we come from on the cultural or religious spectrum, and if we could begin to do that, maybe we could um, have a better polis. <laughs> well, a better world polis, cosmopolis. Uh, you know, nothing would give me greater happiness than, than to think that that happened, and, and, and nothing would be give me greater pride than to think that I might have facilitated that in any tiny way. I have just heard this morning... Um, and I'm thrilled that the book, which is already being translated into several European languages, is um, also being translated into Taiwanese, uh, Chinese, Arabic in Egypt, and um, Iraqi and Turkish. So that includes Muslim countries. It includes sort of Shinto Buddhist 
come Confucian countries. Um, it's also been translated in, into Russian. I mean, I don't know what um, Putin would make of secular virtue ethics, but I think it wouldn't do him any harm at all to take them a little bit more seriously. So if in any small way the book has uh, is going to help people to do that, because it is secular ethics that provided you're not a fanatic religious-wise, anybody can adopt, right? It is compatible with any religion, provided you're not you don't let religion guide your every single thought uh, obsessively uh, and relinquish human judgment, moral judgment to it, which very few people do, but a few do in every religion, um, then it is very, very, very uh, human and user-friendly. So I would hope so. And all those languages represent so many countries that you can travel without your husband. Uh, yes, that is true. I'm, yes. A big book I'm, tour. I have a child who's doing um, Oriental languages at uni, so maybe I could go with her to the Far East. Well, I hope this book is read in all those languages. Thank you. And I hope all of my listeners, I can't say it strong enough, get a copy of Aristotle's Way. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for talking with me about it. And thanks for such an incredibly well-informed interview. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Edith for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Aristotle's Way. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.